The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I have been admiring Arthur Meyerson's work even before I knew his name. He is one of those photographers whose photographs have been on my consciousness since I started picking up a camera. The way he uses light and color and form has inspired not only my photography, but generations of other photographers. For decades, Arthur was one of the industry's top commercial and editorial photographers, and was honored not once, but three times as Adweek's Southwest Photographer of the Year. He was also named one of the 30 best advertising photographers by American Photo Magazine. But the amazing thing about Arthur's work is you would be hard-pressed to identify which photographs represent his professional work and which would be part of his personal work. Because for Arthur, it's virtually all the same. He has a very personal vision that rises above just being a style and truly marks him as a master photographer. Well, first off, Arthur, just just thank you for making the, the time for me. I'm I'm a great fan of your uh, your work and having the chance to sit down and and, and you know look at, prepare for the interview uh, provided me the excuse to take a look at your work. And um, I'm just reminded of how long I've been looking at your work and how much I've I've loved it over the years. Um, I wanted to start by talking to you about the influence of Ernst Haas, because I know he really impacted your, your photographic life. And, and while I know he influenced you photographically, it seems like the impression he left with you was a significant one that goes beyond what, you know, things he may have taught you about light and about color. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us why that relationship and, and, and the time you spent with him has influenced so much of your life. I think Ernst influenced an entire generation of photographers, uh, from certainly from my peer group and earlier. Um, he was truly one of the most incredible people I've ever met or known. Uh, I think in every sense of the word, he was a Renaissance man. He, he certainly was a great photographer. He was a poet. He was a painter. He was into music. Um, he could do so many things. And the beautiful thing was is that he had this amazing way of wrapping it all back into photography. Um, and that, to me, was always fascinating to see what he would say and what he would do. He was truly someone to listen to rather than to have a conversation with, although you could have a great conversation with him. Um, you know, I think the things that I learned from him that I still carry with me, there's so many things, but... Photographically, uh, it was really, I think, about simplicity, about uh, things like trying to say the most with the least, not carrying a bunch of equipment, um, uh, trying to say your story in the simplest way possible. And then when we bring the color part into the equation, that became a whole other thing. He had a color palette that I think so many of us still <laughs> 
are trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. It you know it it certainly started with the early Kodachrome that uh, he had access to and was using long before uh, many others. That work resonated with me and, as I said, so many of my uh, fellow photographers. Uh, I remember the first time I saw the book, The Creation, and that was a, that was a major turning point in my life is to see those were color photographs and they were done in a way that I had never seen or experienced photography before. I love black and white. I've always loved black and white. I started in black and white like most of us do. And uh, when I saw color and color done that way, it really did. It was a huge turn on. And I think ever since I've been trying to do my own color thing and create my own color palette and work in my own color world. As I said, I love both black and white and color and the comment Ernst used to use is they're just like two different languages. Some of us speak one better than the other. So I think I happen to speak color better these days. Interesting about looking at his work and looking at your work in comparison to a lot of color work that's out there is that a lot of the color work that I see elsewhere, it seems to revolve around color being the subject of the photograph. And when I look at your work and I look at Ernst's work, color is an important element of the photograph, but it isn't com completely the photograph. And, and, and especially when I look at Ernst's work, uh, that's especially the case there. Was that developing that sort of sensibility? What, what, what was it, what was the sort of the challenge for you to be able to consider, you know, the other things that have, you've incorporated into your photographs in terms of light, in terms of form, in terms of the moment, um, how, how, how difficult was it you for sort of not to get so myopic about color that it dominated the entire composition? It's still difficult. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's what I think I do every day when I go out to shoot. And it's one of the things I stress to my students is these days in trying to make a color photograph, you know, something that you capture, print, hang on the wall go past every day and have it resonate with you, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think that's one of the challenges is where color is not only part of, of the composition, it can be the subject. It, it needs to be seen such. And I think training your eyes, your vision to see in such a way that color um, becomes the subject or certainly part of the subject, that takes time. That takes experience. It takes work. Um, as I said, I'm continually am working at it. And I don't think you ever, you know, I don't think you ever get to a point where you feel like you've got it. You keep working it and working it from different points of view. I know for the longest time, uh, I would shoot with a certain combination camera lens. Uh, when I first start in color, and I think most people do this, is we start with uh, longer lenses, 80 to 200, something like that. And it's mainly because what we're trying to do is to simplify. And you get to a point where you've done that. Then you want to start exploring other possibilities and to explore other possibilities. Then I think you need to be looking into a wider focal length and that's one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing, you know, the last several years is, all right, let's try to do it now and still make every part of the frame count. It still, it still all has to count. Uh, foreground, middle ground, background, it all still yeah. needs to connect. And color has to be part of that. The problem with color 
is that color is an addition. And when you add something to a picture, it doesn't always work. So learning to see how color can work and be part of that composition, again, I think is that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. You make comparisons to your photography as being uh, the equivalent of a writer writing a short story. And when I think about writing a short story, for me, it's so much about exclusion, the stuff that you leave out in order to create the greatest impact within the story. When you're out photographing, how important of a role is what you decide not to include in the frame play in you making a successful photograph? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, at that point, when you put the frame around the subject, that's the first edit. That's the mm. first edit. That's where you're actually saying, this is what's important. This is what I want to see. This is what I want to share with other people. And that's very important. That decision of where you include part of that subject, part of that background, part of that foreground, uh, and how that plays into the final photograph is very key. I think it's a very subjective decision and it's something that's made at the moment. I can't say that I always spend a great deal of time, especially when I'm, say, shooting on the street, thinking about those things. So much of that is instinctive and uh, going with your gut feeling. And I think, again, the more you do this, I feel the better you get at it. And you begin to see as that focal length sees and to already know, I'll include this, I'll have this. You're not thinking so much about what f-stop, what shutter speed those things. It becomes, as they say, an extension of the eye. Yeah. There's one photograph that seems to have been really pivotal in your career, and it's the picture of the five Japanese women uh, adorned in red. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you've talked a lot about that photograph, and I was hoping you could share with us what that picture me uh, meant in terms of your, your photographic journey, why it was such sort of a, a pivotal moment that sort of informed everything that you did subsequently. It was uh, actually that was taken during a photo trip to Japan with Ernst and a group of photographers back in the early 80s. And uh, again, you know, that, that photograph, that trip was all part of that uh, uh, great awakening. Prior to that picture, I remember, prior to that picture, prior to that week, I'd been there for two weeks and we'd been photographing all over. I had started out like uh, several photographers in those days, we didn't have zoom lenses that we trusted, so you carrying two, three camera bodies with motor drives, a variety of lenses, a camera bag with, you know, as much stuff as you could cram in there, a tripod, <laughs> and I remember him looking at me, Ernst looking at me on day one and saying, what are you doing? I said, well, I just wanted to make sure I had everything I need, and he says, yes, but how do you feel? I said, I feel terrible. I'm exhausted. He said, try lightening your load. And I did the next day, I took it down to two bodies and three lenses and no tripod. So I was already traveling smaller. I was traveling lighter. And now what I was doing is I was beginning to see more. I was beginning to actually concentrate on what was in front of me and not was on my back or my shoulder. The photograph of the Japanese women in the rice field was from a, uh, a rice planting ceremony that was taking place in Kyoto. And the ceremony itself was a beautiful thing to see and try to photograph, except that the Japanese media had a tendency to wander, 
right into the middle of the frame. These women were all down. There were hundreds of women in these outfits that were in this ceremony that were working and uh, doing their thing, and there was music being played. But then you had this uh, group of uh, Japanese media that were down in there photographing for television for whatever purposes and basically, uh, well, changing the entire mood of, of what was going on. So it was a bit frustrating. And as the event unfolded and, and ended, these ladies began pulling themselves back up onto the bank side there. And there was this one moment where I found those five ladies that were standing kind of in a line together. And I began photographing. And what I saw was this beautiful thing about color and gesture coming together. And I found it, it was all about the tilt of their heads, uh, their, their hats, their expressions beneath that, their body language, uh, all of that. But it felt like it needed something else. And I kept waiting and continuing to shoot. And slowly but surely, I saw this other woman come passing in front of them who was about to also get up on the bank side. As she passed in front of them, it it changed everything for me. And it changed what I thought in a positive way. It kind of broke what I thought was this perfect pattern and made it a lot more interesting, gave it a lot more context. And I was ready for it, and I made the photograph. At the time, I didn't know that this was going to end up being uh, an iconic image. I don't think you ever know that. But looking back, it's still that image totally resonates with me, and I continue to use it as a great example of an image that uses color, uh, gesture, a moment. Uh, there's not a lot of light there, uh, actually, because it was beginning to rain, which was in, a, in its own way kind of a beautiful metaphor to the whole scene, which the the basis of this festival is, you know, they're praying for a good harvest, they're praying for rain. And sure enough, in fact, one of the ladies has her hands out kind of cupped in front of her, and she's feeling the raindrops as they begin to fall. You're known for a, a lot of photographs, and one of my favorite of yours is the one of a cowboy with, I guess, a toothpick in the yeah. rear of the hat. I mean, I just, I love the simplicity of the shot, uh, but it, it's one of those shots that just stops me cold. And I think, and I look at it and I go, this thing is so simple. It is such a mundane, ordinary scene, yet Arthur makes this thing look stunningly amazing. And it's and it's moments like that that I'm always eager to be in tune with so that I can recognize it and shoot it. I, I'm glad you liked that picture. It's one of my favorites as well. And it came about from a, uh, a project that I was doing on a ranch in West Texas uh, covering the spring and fall roundups. And that project went on for about eight or nine years. But that particular photograph, that particular moment was happening I was sitting up on a fence post. I was looking down at the men as they were uh, roping the cattle and, and branding them. And there was this one cowboy who was below me, and I noticed his hat. And I noticed the toothpick, that pristine toothpick sticking in the back of the hat, band, which a lot of these guys carry all kind of things. You'll see spoons. You'll see uh, what feathers, all kind of stuff. But that toothpick was so unusual to see that little white strip in the middle of all this dust and dirt. And Sam Abel, who's a very good friend, looks at that photo and he told me, he said, you know, this is a faceless portrait. 
a portrait in reverse. And I'd never thought of it that way. But when you look at the picture and you look at the hat and you look at the layers of sand, uh, dirt that have compiled on the guy's hat, the ring that is uh, left from the uh, brim of his hat that on his vest there, there's so much information there, telling information about this person that I think he was right. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a faceless portrait. And it's interesting to think that, yes, we can do photographs that don't necessarily have to show a face that can certainly tell us a lot more about the subject in an interesting way. You know, it's, it's so much about the telling gesture, that one little thing that really can make or break a photograph. Do you have to, can you talk about the mindset that you get into and how you get into it that allows you to be able to be observant of of a detail that most people would be oblivious to, but that you know can make a, a huge difference in terms of the, the photograph? Well, it's a really good question. I don't know. I think, again, a lot of it has to do with uh, going out without a plan, which, you know, my mantra has always been to avoid preconceptions. Uh, with my commercial work, that would be a different thing. I had to go out with some kind of a game plan, but I never like to plan too much photographically. I like to kind of be taken by what's out there. And um, there's that great quote that I think Ernst may have had about, you know, sometimes you don't take a photograph, you're taken by a photograph. And I'm sure you've heard that mm -hmm. before, but that happens a lot. And for instance, Going back to the, the toothpick shot, that was one of those moments. You're totally, if you are open to what's going on, you're going to see things that you've never seen. But if you go out there with this preconceived idea of what you want to do, you're so likely, I think, to be disappointed by what's not there and miss what is there. So I think openness is very key to uh, putting yourself in a position where, yes, you're going to see things that maybe you've never seen before. And that's, that's kind of the key, you know. It might be light, a certain type of light that's like, oh, my God, light. It could be an incredible thing that's about color. Um, it could be about a, a moment. And ideally, you know, what you're looking for is something where all of those things kind of converge and then they come into one image that hopefully you can capture. And if you're lucky, you get that and uh, you've, you've, you've got something that uh, you can take home with you and go, yeah, that's what I had in mind. Yeah. Well, you know, not only for your personal work, but also your commercial work. And I read a quote that I, I really enjoyed and I wanted to sort of pick your brain a little more about it. It's this idea that you're only as good as your clients. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and yeah. I said, oh, I definitely have to talk to Arthur more about that. Why, why don't you share uh, what, what your thoughts are when you, uh, when you I, say that? I think that, uh, well, first of all, I'm not doing much commercial work these days. I've pretty much backed away from it. It's a, it's a very different game than it was for the 40 years that I practiced uh, commercial photography. And I loved uh, what I did when I did it. But the, the game's changed. Um but the client was always, I think, the key. If you had a client who ideally hired you to let you do what you do best, uh, you were always going to come back with something special, mainly because even if you felt put upon, that was the deal. It was the openness and willingness of them to let. On the other hand, if you had a client who was so specific that it has to be like this, this, and this, and we got to have the type here and it needs to be there and you need, um, you know, you do the best you could. But I always found that if I had the opportunity 
to do more than what was just asked for, I could usually do better work. Um, I always said, you know, you owe it to the client to do it their way. But you owe it to yourself to do it your way. And hopefully they're going to like your way. You never know. But if you spend the time with it, I, you know, in those days we would, a lot of times you'd work on a day rate. Uh, that was fine. Um, but I probably spent a lot more time than, you know, was expected. I had clients, uh, art directors who said, okay, you got the shot. Let's go. Let's go have a drink. And I said, no, we've got that shot. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep working. This is, you know, what we're here for. And again, working with a good client, an art director, a graphic designer made all the difference. I think one of the things that's missing these days, at least I found toward the end of the time that I was shooting, was collaboration. Um, I like collaborating with an art director, designer, or a picture editor, and finding out what is it that we're trying to say or do here. I mean, this is a job. You're paying me to do this. I owe it to you to come back with something that, you know, visually speaks to whatever your service or sub or uh, uh product is here. I need to give you something that's strong. And a lot of times I should say, you know, we were dealing with things that weren't particularly fabulous uh, subjects to photograph. So, you know, you could be in the middle of an oil field somewhere. What are we going to do here and make something? If you had an open client, you could wander and you could begin to find things that they could never really even think about or conceive of. And that to me is very much about what commercial photography was about. Going out, and creating images that were the unexpected things. I loved it when I could come back from the shoot and put things in front of a client and they go, wow, I didn't see that. Mm -hmm. And they were standing right next to me. Or maybe they weren't. It makes no difference. The main thing was is that I always believed in trying to give them more than what they were asking for because, A, <laughs> I really wasn't sure of myself enough to know was this going to be good enough. And, you know, in the days of film, that was kind of the the – the good thing, bad thing is, you know, it was like waiting to see, did I get it or not? Um, you got to a point where I think you were very confident at some point about your skills as a photographer, which is in those days, that's what you were hired for. Mm -hmm. Is not only to make great images, but uh, I think to some degree it's a performing art too. They expect you to, you know, go out, do your thing at the end of the day, come out, let's go to a restaurant, let's go to a bar tell us some more stories kind of thing, yeah. or let's make something happen here that's not happening at this photograph, this sub subject, this situation. Well, with that, that thought in mind, you uh, part of your commercial career revolved around the, uh, the big uh, commercial um, oil boom in Texas. And so you did a lot of work for, uh, for clients revolving that, around that industry. And t talk to me about what you, know, what you just expressed in terms of bringing – you know, more to the table than maybe what they expected. Because your images are not just oil barrels and oil rigs. Uh, your images have a, uh, a wonderful, bring a wonderful aesthetic to the table as well. But talk to us about being able to bring, you know, your strengths as a photographer to images that, you know, they, they may not have been considering when they decided to, to hire you. You know, I'll tell you. When I went out and I had that type of situation, freedom to do the kind of shots that I was talking about, I was like a kid in a candy shop because you go to these places that most people never get to go to. And it was like an adventure. It's like, what am I going to see here that's going to be interesting to photograph? I always looked at it from a standpoint of personal shooting. 
And if it happened to dovetail with, you know, the commercial shoot, even better. I remember some of my fellow photographers saying, God, you know, I look at your stuff and this ad or this annual report or this brochure. And it's like, you know, it looks like, you know, uh, these were things you did for yourself. They don't look like the typical commercial. And I think that that was true. There was this sort of mm -hmm. innocence that I think I had just about this is interesting. This is, And it might have been something that was totally irrelevant to whatever else I was there for. But I think, again, when it was seen in certain eyes a certain way, it could help illustrate an idea um, uh, about the company or about their service or product that helped to, you know, explain what it is they did or how they do it. And so, again, that was, that was a big part of it was going out there and just being open and trying to find these things and have – have that freedom to do that. I really hope that you are enjoying our conversation with Arthur Meyerson. It's conversations just like this that inspired me to create the Candid Frame 10 years ago. And I hope that it's conversations like this, as well as others with great photographers like Mary Ellen Mark, Dan Winters, Eli Reed, David Allen Harvey, Jay Maisel, and hundreds of others that have kept you coming back. Because of your support over the years, The Candid Frame has become more than just another podcast. It's become a source of inspiration for photographers all over the world who have aspired to make photography a bigger part of their lives, be it as a professional or an amateur. The show is as good as it is because you are a regular listener. And whether you've been listening to TCF for weeks or years, we need your help to make this show even better, and you can do it through our Patreon effort. Through Patreon, you can support the show with regular monthly donations of $2, $5, $10, $25 or more, or anything in between. Your donations of any amount are the means by which we will improve the show and bring you more great conversations with the world's best photographers. Please contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thanks. You know, I don't think that there's a greater wrench that a photographer can throw into the works than this idea of, of adjusting what they do for what they think someone else wants, in this case, sort of the yeah. client. Yeah. And you know, was that a, le a lesson that you had an opportunity to learn the hard way? <laughs> Everything I did, I did the hard way. I mean, if there was a if there was a mistake that could be made, I made it. I keep in mind, or maybe you're aware. I don't. I wasn't trained as a photographer. I, I majored in journalism, and one of the courses I had to take was a photojournalism course, which was basic uh, black and white printing and processing. And I will tell you, as I'm sure you've heard a million times for other photographers, uh, watching that image come up in the tray was magic. Mm -hmm. And I love magic. I still love magic. But to see that happen, that was cool. And from that point on, I was hooked into photography. Um, I, I think that um, going back to your thing about the energy business, I, I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't know it, uh, but it, it, it worked out that way. That said, I really and truly began to see at some point that um, I could continue to keep shooting oil rigs, drill bits, and anything related to that industry for the rest of my life and, you know, and make a lot of money. 
I didn't want to do that. And somebody very early on in my career said, you know, be careful not to put all your eggs in one basket. And it would have been very easy to do that in the energy business. And so when things were really going hot and heavy, um, I began to explore the other things that I wanted to do. I wanted to go shoot for Nike. I wanted to shoot for Coca-Cola. I wanted to shoot for uh, Transamerica, other corporations, Apple and whatever. And I walked away, or at least I began making trips to Atlanta and Chicago and New York and San Francisco and L.A. Um, with my portfolio at hand and seeing art directors and picture editors and promoting myself in such a way that someday, hopefully, I could, you know, get the opportunity to do some other types of work. And eventually that, that happened. Uh, and fortunately, when it happened, uh, things had begun, begun to go bust in the energy business uh, in the 80s. And uh, it wasn't like I had a crystal ball and do anything about business. I just, it was my own frustration about not wanting to keep doing the same thing. So I was pushing myself in a different direction just than a desire to do other types of photography commercially. And uh, so again, I think that drive to do that led me there. I think I've, I may have missed your question on that. Or not no, 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 you're good. You're good. Um, to tell me about the, this, the business end of things because, uh, you know, commercial photography can certainly be lucrative, but uh, a lot of careers are short-lived. Uh, it's very difficult in terms of handling the business side of things as opposed to the creative sides of things. So well, I think that uh, myself and, uh, again, many of my peers would say that we lived what was probably the end of the golden age of commercial photography. I think it's a very, very different kind of game now. So many of the photographers that I uh, came up with, competed against, etc., most of them aren't doing commercial work anymore. Uh, a lot of us are teaching workshops, uh, leading photo trips. We're doing other things. And uh, so the business, I think, has changed. It's always been competitive. It was very competitive back when I was doing it. I think it's ultra competitive now. And I think very, very difficult, but not impossible, for young people to be successful in commercial photography or in editorial photography or anything else. It's just that the game has changed. Games change in every profession, but in photography, what we're, what we're talking about here, it's definitely changed a lot. And I think one has to decide what he or she really, what it is they want to do with their work and how they want to you know, proceed. Back when I was doing it, self-promotion was a very, very big way of getting yourself out there. You had uh, directories like the Black Book uh, directory. You had uh, uh, self-promotional mailers people did. A lot of these things, which I don't think anybody does now and it probably wouldn't make any sense to do. But the most important thing was, and I would imagine still is, word of mouth. I always felt that you were as good as the last job that you did. And nothing better than having a client, uh, be it an art director, a, a, a designer, a picture editor, or even the client themselves, you know, pass your name on to someone else or say, hey, let's get that same guy back again. That type of thing, I think, is consistent and still what happened today. But, you know, the business, I think, has changed quite a bit. And I mentioned earlier about the lack of desire to collaborate. I Again, I remember some of the last art directors I was working with, 
the attitude or the feeling was, you know, I'd, I'd say, are you going to be coming along? Shoot. And then, no, no, yeah, just go out and shoot it and I'll fix it in Photoshop. <laughs> and I was said, my job is so you don't have to fix it in Photoshop. Um, and I think you're, you're going to be missing a big part of what happens out there and seeing, you know, what it is that we deal with. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they send you halfway around the world to go do a, an assignment. And the last thing they wanted to hear was why you didn't get the picture. You know, right. there was a, uh, I learned a lot from commercial photography. I mean, A, about challenge. And a, another thing was discipline. And that discipline still carries over, I think, into my personal work and into my teaching. And so far as certain things that I really tried to impress upon my students, which are, you know, try to avoid cropping your image. Try to get everything in camera. That sounds old school, but the reason is, was that when we were making photographs on film, 35 millimeter slide film, you may not know whether that image was going to be used posted stamp size or whether it was going to be used as a billboard. And you wanted to account for every single piece of that film to be utilized in its best way and not so that it had to be cropped and then you begin to break down the fidelity of the image. So I still think that so much of that applies today. I, I think one of the negatives about digital, and I'm, I'm all digital these days, I'm all about it. It took me a while to get there, but I'm all about it is that discipline's out the window. People, you know, uh, can pretty much make a technically decent image without a lot of effort. Uh, They may or may not know why or how that's happening. But it's still about the same. And it's still about the, uh, I think, the knowing a little bit of technical information about what's going on inside the camera, controlling things and that makes such a difference when you understand those things. So I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I, like I said, I'm very much into digital now. I, I, it took me a while to get there. Part of that was initially, uh, and none of my clients at the time wanted it or would take it. You know, they still wanted film. They wanted that thing that they could put in their hand, that they could hold, that they, mm-hmm. you know, knew how to work. And until I actually began to learn enough about digital, I couldn't, I couldn't sell them on it. You know, I had to know that what I was going to be producing would be something that would certainly satisfy and work for them. Yeah. And so it did. It took a while. And when it finally happened, uh, then I could go to them and say, okay, folks, I think digital is the way to go. I think it's as good, if not better than film. And here's why. And here's how we do it. Uh, getting back to the, uh, the discussion of color, with, with Kodachrome, and Ectochrome and, and whatever other films you may have used. I mean, the color was there. I mean, and that was it. That's what you got. And you're working with a very limited color palette. But with digital, you have a lot more flexibility. Uh, you have a lot more control, not only over white balance, but how you may even post-process the image later. How did your use of, of color and the way you saw color when you were photographed sort of evolve or change as a result of the control that was now available to, to you through digital? I was always and still trying to reproduce uh, as closely as I could uh, that color palette that I remember uh, from Kodachrome. Uh, still trying to do that. And uh, I, I work at that. Uh, I think I'm successful with that most of the time. I think there's some times when maybe it doesn't come across that way. But that that's really what I'm trying to do is, is 
that film was unbelievable. I mean, I made my career on that film. I eventually used other films as well, but Kodachrome was this wonderful thing that uh, I remember every time the yellow boxes came back from Kodak and you opened up. It was like Christmas, you know, uh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it was a good present and not uh, a failure, although I can say there were some times that uh, there was disappointment. But, uh, yeah, that color palette to me was just something special and uh, I miss. So, for me, that's what I've tried to do. I don't, and I'm really, again, going back to my students, I really try to avoid doing too much beyond that. I, I really want them to capture or I, this is what I want, and if they want to follow that, that's fine. I want to capture what's there. I want to show you what I saw and say, you know, hey, look at this. You know, wow, look at this light. Look at this moment. Uh, look at the color happening here. And, yeah, that's it's that much. I, I'm not uh, a big – I'm certainly not very technical anyway. I know enough to get myself in trouble, but uh, I think that's part of the problem with, say – people, at least a lot of people that I'll get my classes that get on the that Photoshop highway. They don't know what exit to take. Mm-hmm. And they keep driving and driving it. And, you know, they'll end up with something that is so foreign from what they initially started with. And and I think the bottom line is you don't make it any better if you don't have a good image to begin with. It's all about a good, strong image composition to begin with. So uh, all the Photoshop, all the Lightroom, all those things in the end uh, aren't going to make it better. Um, so do I use Lightroom? Yes. Do I use Photoshop a little bit when I have a situation that's the only other way that I can get to what I need to clean up an image? Your personal projects, they've always played an important role, uh, in, in your photography. What, what does that look like now? What do you, what do you enjoy working on now? I know you do a good amount of street photography, but I'm wondering about whether you, you find it important to work on on something specific at any given point? Uh, I always try to have something uh, that I've got going, and it might be a folder or folders on my desktop when I come back from a trip that I'll start to drop images into, and at some point I'll pull up those folders and start looking to see what do I have in there and what does it look like. Um, I do a fair amount of travel uh, on workshops and photo tours that I'm leading, um, and that will certainly yield images. The thing I'm working on right now that uh, I'm excited about and uh, is, is my next book. Uh, the first book that I did, The Color of Light, uh, was a self-published venture. Um, and it was such a great experience uh, on every level. I, it was a body of work over 40 years of personal images that I put down between two book covers and uh, that whole process of doing that, uh, seeing that work, organizing that work, going back and re-editing and resequencing was a great, great learning experience. And uh, the book is sold out. I made the decision not to reprint uh, with the money that I made from that book. And I did make money from that book, which is unusual. Um, I'm going to use that to produce this next book. So this next book, without saying a whole lot at this point, will be, for lack of a better term, kind of a photography autobiography. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna do some different things. I'm going to talk about some different things. And uh, all the work will be work that hasn't been published in the previous book. It'll, it'll be new work 
could be old work, but new work that hasn't been either seen or published before. So that's something that I'm very excited about because the book project is an opportunity to really sit down, study the work, kind of see where you've been and maybe even give you an idea about where you might be going next. Well, such moments, especially when you're working on a book and, and you're looking at your images from that perspective, can give you insights into your work and yourself that, uh, you know, before you might have completely missed. What, what did you discover about yourself and your work as a result of working on that, on that first book? Uh, I discovered I was really lucky. <laughs> I traveled all over the world many, many times. I got to all seven continents. That was one thing. Um, I also saw the development of myself as a photographer. Some of those images go way back and to things that were current at the time. And I began to see, I I saw a couple of things. I saw how composition related to things that I might have done yesterday to things I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's when you're beginning to see, I don't like to use the word style because I think the wrong thing about the word style is Things go in and out of style. So I'm not about that. I'm more about trying to develop a a photographic vision. At the end of the day, if I've got that, if I've done that, then I'm a happy guy. Um, But I began to see parallels and things that I'd done over time. Uh, That was one thing. I began to see how I would work different subjects uh, from maybe ultra simple to more complex, more layered. it was about growth as a photographer, which I think we're continually trying to do. At least I am, and I imagine most photographers are, should be, because the last thing you want to do is get to a point where you know everything you're doing is fabulous and you think so and nothing else happens. Um, it's about making a lot of mistakes. It's about creating lots of work. And I'll tell you, I, I know a lot of photographers, really good friends who are terrific photographers. I don't know anybody who's a photographic genius. Everybody I know works very, very hard to get to that work that makes the printed page, be it on a print on the wall in an exhibition or in a book. And it's one of the things that I think is difficult to explain to workshop participants is, you know, what you're going to get this week will be a stepping stone. It's not going to be, you know, that you're going to develop your visual fingerprint, as I call it, uh, in, in four or five days. It's a beginning. but You've got to start somewhere. And by doing that and continuing to work those exercises and those assignments that we talk about, you're going to get better. You're going to get better. And at the same time, you've got to be more critical. I know that that was another thing that I did learn from looking at the work was my editing and critiquing of work. I'll tell you, I looked at some of the images that I always thought were like the photograph. And then I'd go back and I'd look at maybe the image before or after, mm-hmm. kind of the equivalent of looking at a contact sheet, which with color, we don't really have that option, at least digital you do, but slides a little bit. And, you know, as interesting as I began to look and think, you know what, I picked the wrong photo. I always thought it was this one. It should have been this one. And I can, seriously, uh, it's, it's one of those things that, again, in talking to other photographers, uh, have agreed. So I think what happens over time is your, let's call it your your photographic maturity changes over time. Mm-hmm. And you as a photographer get to be more accepting 
of things that maybe you weren't accepting of, at the same time being very critical of all those things you want to be critical of or need to be critical of that make it an in and out, a yes or a no. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, you can make a lot of uh, mistakes in your career and you can have some regrets. And one of the ones that uh, I, I you shared um, previously was having spent a, a day with Henri Cartier-Bresson and not making his photograph. <laughs> so t- tell me about that. Well, I was interviewing him, and uh, I had an idea for a project that w- that I was doing uh, relative to Ernst Haas. And uh, he was on the hit list of people to, you know, try to interview. And I, I knew this was going to be a long, long shot. This was at a time... Uh, where he was total recluse. You didn't know what he looked like. Uh, you, you, all you knew was the work. And you also knew that he was kind of ornery and, and a difficult guy to, to get to meet and talk to. Mm-hmm. But I wrote a letter, sent it to Magnum, and just you know figured that was it. And I don't know if it was a month, two months, three months later, I was literally on my way out the door to Europe uh, for an assignment, and the mail came, and I was rifling through it. And on that beautiful thin airmail paper mm-hmm. that we used to see in the old days on envelope handwritten was, you know, Mr. Arthur Ireson, my address, blah, blah. And up in the corner, HCB, uh, the address on Rue Rivoli and Paris. And I, <laughs> I was shaking. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I'm holding the Holy Grail here. And I steamed it open because I was afraid of, of tearing it, and I opened it up, and it was a very nice, courteous, uh, dear Mr. Meyerson, I'd be happy to help you with your project, blah, blah, blah. Uh, call me your next time that you're in Paris. Here's my phone number. And I can tell you, as soon as I landed, I began making phone calls. I was not in Paris at the time. I think it was in Brussels or somewhere. And I kept getting a person who only spoke French, and long and short of it was we... <laughs> We never connected, and I was very disappointed, and I came home, and I was very, you know, thinking, well, this is never going to happen. And I I decided I I had just moved into my studio at the time, and phones had just been put in that day, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And so the first international phone call I ever made from this place was to the great man himself, and he picked up the phone. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation, and it was, please, the next time you come, let's... Let's try to get together. And I said, oh, yes, I'm, I'm going to be in Africa uh, next month, and I can come through Paris on the way back. So I'm making this a very long story, but you wanted to hear it. So, <laughs> yeah. so I do end up in Paris in the wee hours of the night. The next morning, the phone rings, and uh, I'm deliriously still asleep, and it's uh, I pick it up, and yeah, hello. And uh, yes, yes, Mr. Madison, this is Katia Bretson, and I will be at your hotel in one hour. And I had to slap myself. and. Wow jump in the shower. I'm getting ready and I'm preparing for this moment when I'm going to meet Henri Cartier-Bresson and the phone rings and he says he's downstairs and I say fine and hang up and then I realize I don't know what he looks like. Nobody knew what he looked like then. He was totally and to make it even worse as I went down the elevator the doors opened there was a convention of it was all these businessmen and I'm searching scanning trying to find anybody that might fit the description and I found this one gentleman kind of standing by himself, bald, powder blue jacket, windbreaker, um, khaki slacks, a backpack, and uh, kind of standing by himself. And I went over and I said, Mr. Cartier-Bresson, and he said yes, and we began our conversation. And I said, would you like to talk here or would you like to go to a room? No, let's go to your room. So we go up to my room and 
I can tell you there's only two people I've ever been nervous being around. One was Muhammad Ali and the other was Cartier-Bresson. Those are two yeah. different folks. But I, anyway, so I'm riding up the elevator and I, I'm just – I'm nervous. I'm trying to think what am I going to talk to this man about? And by the way, I should say he made it very, very clear that you cannot record any of this conversation with any devices, no pictures. No, and I said, fine, you know, let's, I'll, I'll take notes. And he sat down and began talking. And within two minutes, I couldn't believe I did this. I stopped him and said, "Stop! you have got to stop. You have got to let me record this. I had brought a tape recorder just in case. And uh, I said, I cannot take shorthand. I can't remember all these things you're saying. And we went back and forth, and he finally relented. And he said, okay. And I'm like going, boy, this thing better work. <laughs> so, I, so I clicked it on, and it's rolling, and I'm – He's talking, and I'm just watching the little red light, and I'm going, damn, this thing better work. <laughs> and uh, we had this conversation for uh, a, a few hours, and uh, it was really remarkable, so much of what he was talking about. And he, at this point, he was in his mid to late 80s, and there would be points where he would wander in the conversation, but for the most part, it was really, really fascinating to have this moment. And finally, he said, look, I, I've got to go. I, I, he made a big point throughout the conversation of saying how photography really wasn't important to him. Um, not anymore. You know, I've said what I had to say. Mm -hmm. I've done that painting, drawing. That's where I'm at now. And I'm going to meet a model now to go draw her. And I've got to go. And I, I said, oh, well, thank you very much. And he said, well, do you have time for a glass of wine? And I thought, yes, let me check my schedule. Yes, I had. So, we uh, we went downstairs and we went to a, a little unassuming uh, cafe and we're sitting there and we're having a glass of wine and he's talking and I, I mean I, I I was like an idiot I mean I wanted to stand up and shout to everybody do y'all know who this is you know and it's like no they didn't have any idea but anyway I didn't we got up to leave walked out the door politely said thank you he said look if I can be of any other help on this project let me know. And just as he started to turn, I don't know what it was, I said, uh, Mr. Cartier-Bresson, one more question. And he said, what? And I said, what's in your backpack? And he said, oh, my Leica, and turned and left. And that was so <laughs> ironic because all I heard for the, you know, in part of that conversation was how it's not important, I don't take pictures anymore, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, so I, I think there was the, the regret is more – I knew I couldn't take his photo, but I sure as hell should have asked him to take a picture with my camera. But, you know, <laughs> I've got the story. So. Oh, that's a great story. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or it can be someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, boy. Um, I know and have so many great friends that are contemporary photographers that I really love and respect, uh, many of which probably have been on your show. I'll tell you what. When I open a class, one of the first things I ask my students is, how many people know the name or the work of Ernst Haas? And it's amazing to me and sad to me how many people don't. That, that Those hands that come up are fewer and fewer. And, you know, this year is the 30th anniversary of his death. And uh, it's it it all comes back as a sad time, but also a time to think back to him. I would, without a doubt, say that people should get to know the work of Ernst. Um, it's H double A S. Um, 
truly a remarkable man, a great color photographer, um, unbeknownst to many people, he actually had the first color exhibit at MoMA uh, back in the 60s. Um, he was the first of a lot of things, first color stories in Life magazine, first motion color stories uh, printed in Life. He, he was a man who was so far ahead of his time in so many ways and left us way, way too soon. So, yeah, without a doubt, I would say to people, get to know and learn the work of Ernst Haas. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It was a real pleasure and an honor and a real joy for me to have the chance to finally sit down and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We did good for a Friday the 13th, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, the thank way you. I, it was a pleasure. The way I look at Friday the 13th is, is it's so much bad luck for everyone else that there's a surplus of luck left for me. <laughs> <laughs> From your mouth to God's ears. Let's hope. Thank All you right. very much. All right. Well, take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Ted Vieira for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution to the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or find a link in the show notes and on the candid frame website, thecandidframe.com. I'd like to thank all the people who have recently contributed to the effort, which include Remo Fiorini, Kurt Congdon, Ted Vieira, Alan Boudreau, Chuck Hasser, Robert Goldstein, Ellen Herbert, Gert Jan Cole, Chris Pearson, Andrew Withy, Ken Walton, Stephen Barker, Kyle Nishioka, Freddie Clark, Mark J. Causa, J.K., and Greg Gonzalez. Thank you so much for your support. To access our complete archive of interviews, Download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.